You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Man, it's so good to be here with you today. Isn't it a good day to worship the Lord? And if you have little kids and they come in soaking wet and the little boys loved it, run through the puddles. It's a great thing about little boys, right? I don't The little girls run around puddles. Yeah, some of you are like, not my little girl. I'm like, Well, it is great to be here with you today. We are in a series going through the book of Ephesians. We're breaking this into three major sections. First week, we looked at um, how we are secure in Christ. Last week, we looked at the power that we have in Christ. And this week, I want to look at this very thing. So if you get nothing else, get this today, that we have a purpose, a purpose in Christ. So a very generous man in our church gave me a a little stack of free Chick-fil-A meals. He loves Jesus and me. That's all I need to know. So... I go to Chick-fil-A, and my goodness, I don't know if it's because it's summer here in Avon, they are packed, literally like it's wrapped around the building from the drive-thru, so like every other person, I think, I know what I'll do, I'll go inside. So you go inside, and it's like in Disney World. I mean, it's like down, wrapped around, back around, but I'm like, but it's free, and it's Chick-fil-A, so I'm waiting this puppy out. So I get in line, and uh, this gentleman comes up behind me, and he's older, he's probably older, and... um, I always get in trouble. I'm not going there. I'm not a fool. And, uh, but he's standing behind me. He comes up and he's an employee. And so I'm like, oh, I'm like, are you getting on shift? Are you in the middle of a shift? How's that going? And he said, you know, I'm on shift right now. And so we're joking. I'm like, how in the world are you going to eat and not use up your entire break waiting in line? It's like, won't they let you just go in the back and make your food? And he's like, so we were just talking. And so we start discussing uh, work at Chick-fil-A. And he said to me, something effective, he said, you know, the guy who owns this Chick-fil-A comes to Kingsway at least every once in a while. His name is Chris. Great man. Chris has blessed us. If you guys know Chris, isn't he? you're just a great guy. Just a good man, isn't he? And he said, you, he said, I tell the teenagers who work here all the time, you will never have a better boss than this. Like, he is a good man. You're not always going to like his decisions. You're not always going to like what he does. That's part of working for someone. And, uh, but he's a good guy. And Sid said, sometimes we see teenagers leave, and they'll come back, and I'll ask them what happened. And he said, they'll tell me. Well, they went and found out I was right. They went and worked for someone else and didn't like it so much. So as we're talking and doing our Disney wrap up and down around kind of thing, um, I'm just asking him all these questions. Like, so tell me what it's like to work with teenagers today. And he says this profound thing. He says, you know, he said, the thing about these teenagers today, you can always expect an older guy to start a sentence like that, right? You know, the thing about these teenagers today, he really wasn't complaining. He said, I love them. He said, a lot of them almost seem like lost because they, they just don't like know their way. He said they, they expect the company to do everything for them. They expect to be able to show up late, leave early, be able to play on their phones, and be frustrated about the amount of money that they agreed to be paid when they took the job. You're all laughing because you have teenagers, like the one-third of the room that has teens. Went, <laughs> oh. <laughs> My friend, uh, one of our elders, Jared, I went running with him the other day, and we were talking about what are we doing to our kids that we just don't know yet because, you know, when I was a kid, I, when I was a kid, I'm old enough to say that now. <laughs> anyway, when I was a kid, you could put all of my toys, not counting like bikes or sport stuff, but you could put all my toys on a box. It came up to here, and it was three quarters full from like birth to 13 years old. All my toys fit in there. Because I know, because my mom gave me the box a few years ago. She's like, I'm throwing it away or get it out of my basement. It's your choice. And that was all my toys. And I threw half of them away, and I've sold some of them recently because somebody wanted old Transformers or whatever. And I'm looking at that box and thinking, if each of my kids had a box this size, I would actually have a house. (laughs) But instead, we literally just moved 90% of our kids' toys upstairs and made a toy room out of a bedroom. And it is walled, like, just everywhere. There's, like, containers of toys. And every birthday and every Christmas, they're going to get more toys. And I'm thinking to myself, the system is dramatically broken. My kids think that when we go to the store, it's time to buy a toy. Like, they ask me all the time, hey, can I have one of those on TV? And of course I say no, but they have grandparents. It's not my fault, not all the way. The reason I say this is because here's the point. I believe If you don't have a very clear purpose or mission for your life, you will chase after anything that gets your attention. Are you with me? If you don't have a greater goal, a greater meaning, a greater purpose for your daily life, then all kinds of things will take up your time, your attention. It might be alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be work. 
It might be chasing a person and their approval. It might be clothing or style. It might be fitness. There's any number of things that you can give your heart to, your time to, your attention to, your brain power to, and all of them are built to wear you out because they were never made to fill the gap that you're sticking them into. And so there's always a hole around it and you feel a little bit empty when you chase it and you don't get it. And we have an entire generation, I believe, of people we're raising and we've sold them on something significantly less than the gospel. And so consequently, they're grasping at straws to figure out life, a life that doesn't seem to add up. One of the things I love, since I just kind of joked about the younger generation, for some of you in here, one of the things I love about your generation is you don't want to work for companies, you want to bring about change in the world. Don't give up that dream, but you're going to have to get a job to make it happen. Now, let's talk about, and we're going to get a glimpse of this. Let's talk about why we exist in the world today, and this may be very helpful or clarifying to you. We're going to do this in kind of a back road, so we're going to start at the back door, walk through the front door, and then we walk out the front door. You're going to be like, oh, that's why we went there. All right, turn with me in your Bible to the book of Ephesians, book of Ephesians, chapter 2, chapter 2. This is one of the most powerful passages in the entire Bible. And I know I say that every week, but this time I mean it. In Ephesians chapter 2, you're also going to find one of those passages that's highly discussed and debated among scholars and Bible teachers and that kind of thing. And I just want you to know, I'm not even going down the road of the debate. I, it's not even the point of today. What exactly does it mean to be, have a sin nature, to be dead in your sins? We're not really going that route. I want to apply this to everyday life. So Ephesians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, you don't know how to use your Bible, I just encourage you to download our app or just watch this little screen right here. It'll all be right there. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Once... You were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. You leave that last verse up there for me. So there's a few things to note here. Paul is writing this letter to a church in the city known as Ephesus. Ephesus. That's why we call it the book of Ephesians. The way this would work is Paul or Peter or one of the other apostles, Paul did most of the writing. He would write a letter to a church in a city. Ephesus, Colossae is where we get the book of Colossians. Philippi is where we get the book of Philippians. Uh, Rome is where we get the book of Romans, and so on. And so he would write these letters. So what the church would do is they would copy it down word for word, and they would trade. It's like baseball cards. You give me your letter, I'll give you my letter. And these letters written by Paul and Peter and the apostles were the church's teachings about who God is, what God's doing in the world, and what he expects from us. So as we get into this, you need to know Paul is not writing to a group of people who do not know God. They are writing to a group of people, Paul's writing to a group of people, who have received Jesus. In fact, if you want more of that story, go to the book of Acts, chapter 19, and you can read about that story taking place in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major metropolitan city at the time. It has one of the seven ancient wonders of the world located in its city, the Temple of Diana. Today, there's not much left of the temple, but we're in awe of what we do know about it and somewhat amazed at how they even built it. Diana was one of those false goddesses of the ancient Greco-Roman world. She was the god of uh, the huntress god and also the god of um, fertility. And so you can imagine the kind of things associated with that in the city of Ephesus. Because of that, and also the other false gods who were present in Ephesus, there was a large, dark community, a lot of idols being built, worshiped to false gods, as people would literally create statues and bow down to those statues and ask those statues to bless them. And see, before we judge Ephesus, let's understand one thing about what all of that means. Everybody in Ephesus was searching for the same thing that we're all searching for, purpose, meaning. Why am I here? See, when life isn't going the way that I need it to go or want it to go or hoped it would go or thought it would go, where do I run to find my security? Where do I run to find my hope? Where do I run to find my power? And the people in Ephesus ran to little statues. 
The people in America, we don't typically, some do, we don't typically have statues. We run to all kinds of other things to give us meaning, be it rooms full of toys or sports or work. And we don't yet know sometimes what to do when life doesn't turn out the way we thought it would. And see, what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, the same thing he would say to us today is, see, you just remember, just remember, guys, you were dead in your transgressions. The phrase actually they are used, and I believe it's in verse one, you were actually, it says, not just disobedient like the New Living Translation says, go look at your King James Version, your English Standard Version, your New American Standard Version, because the actual Greek says, you were sons of disobedience. And what Paul's trying to paint this picture of, imagine a family, and the family dad is Satan. I know, it's not a very good picture. This isn't the first three verses you want to go to when you're having a bad day. But the point he's trying to make is, there's a leader, and you were following the leader. You were in his family. You were on his team. He told you what to do. He gave you marching orders, and you were obedient. And then he clarifies here in verse 3, and all of us live that way. There are literally no exceptions to this rule. Notice it doesn't say all of you. Who's Paul including in the us? Himself. You mean Paul? Yeah, this is the same Paul who used to persecute Christians, used to have them arrested, even had one of them, a guy named Stephen, uh, stoned to death, and he oversaw the whole process. Paul hated Christians because he thought they were the enemy. He was a son of darkness if there ever was a son of darkness. And Paul says what we were doing in those moments is we were following our passionate desires, our natural inclinations. Why? Our natural inclinations, our natural desires weren't for God. Our natural inclinations were bent towards self. We're bent towards this world. We're bent towards selfishness. And the more we pursued that selfishness, the further we got from God. One uh, commentary scholar, a guy named Thomas Yoder Neufeld, says this. To refer to the dead as the sons of disobedience is to imply that they cannot but follow the orders being handed down to them. While they are called disobedient, they are, in fact, highly obedient to someone other than God. They are, therefore, also, by nature, children of wrath. Some translations say anger. I think the New Living says that. Now, this is important. I want you to get this. In case you're visiting with us today, if you're watching online, welcome. We're so glad you're checking us out online. I want you to get this today. This whole wrath and anger thing. See, for some of us, we, we have a hard time with this because maybe we had an abusive spouse or boyfriend or father or mother in our life or something like that, neighbor, grandparent, uncle, somebody who hurt us. That is not the way you need to view God. Let me just clarify who God is based off what he reveals in the Bible about himself. So God is many things. He is love, and he is kind, and he is merciful, but he is also holy, the Bible says. And the word holy in the Hebrew is the word kadosh, and kadosh literally means set apart. He's different then. Now, what's interesting about this set apartness for God is, unlike us, there is no outside force or outside God imposing on God how he must act. Are you with me? So since we are his creation, he created us to be like him, and so he enforced or imposed a certain set of rules. This is good, this is evil. Are you with me? He imposed that on us, but there's nobody above him. There's nobody outside him saying, okay now, God, Yahweh, this is good, and this is evil. Good and evil come out of who he is. Not evil, don't get me wrong here. What I mean is, because he is always good, because he always wants justice to be done, because he is righteous, because he protects the weak and those who have no power, because he cares about that which is lost and needs to be found. All of these things are coming out of his character. So when his creation did not walk in his ways and fell, the response was wrath. Imagine a world, there's roughly 7 billion people in the world today. It's a little hard to count. That's our best guess. Imagine a world where of those 7 billion, only one person, only one person was a sinner. 
Now, that's not the world we live in. We know we live in a world where everybody's a sinner, all seven billion of us. But imagine a world where only one person was a sinner. It would be really easy to point to that person, wouldn't it, and say, man, that dude's wrong. <laughs> like, he's just evil. Like, he always lies. He always deceives. He's always manipulating. He's always twisting things. Maybe he's physically aggressive. Maybe he's promiscuous, whatever, but we're being promiscuous with. Like, he's just a bad dude. Everybody can look at it and see that. You could see from that vantage point, right? If we were in this room and we were the gathering of the innocent and there's that one guy and everybody knows him because he's the one guy in the community. Everybody else is innocent. And you're like, gosh, you just, I can see how God's wrath would totally burn at that dude. Like he's always being dishonest in business with me. Like he's always cheating me. I mean, he's always lying to me. I mean, the other day he hit my car and he drove off, you know, and then he stole someone else's car. Like that guy's just, everybody hates that guy. Even God. See, the problem is the biblical story isn't that there's one person who's sinful. The biblical story is that all seven billion people are sinful. And it breaks God's heart. His creation deceives and lies and manipulates and hurts and backbites and devours and gossips and slanders and is promiscuous and abuses his creation to feel high, to lose control, and it breaks his heart. So as we sin and rebel against God, we are walking literally in the footsteps of another and his name is Satan. If you go all the way back, I do this all the time because I believe everything can be seen right there in the garden picture. You go all the way back to the garden. Everything is perfect. And God has told Adam and Eve, I love this, they are naked and unashamed. There's nothing about them to tell them they're not good enough. They don't measure up because they've never disobeyed God. They have no sense yet of ever disobeying God. And God tells them, eat of this, uh, this any tree you want, any fruit in here. In, in fact, it says, be fruitful and multiply. It, just enjoy each other. I mean, you're naked and unashamed. And by the way, when you're done doing that, Go advance this garden. Go extend this garden beyond the garden. That's what I want you to do. I want you to work and subdue the whole earth. Make it like this place that I've created just for you. And they enjoy the garden. We don't know exactly for how long, but one day the serpent shows up and starts to tempt them. And the first one she tempts is Eve. And I find it fascinating that when Eve takes the fruit and believes the lie, hey, God doesn't want you to eat this because you'll have knowledge and become like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. See, Eve stopped trusting God. But Adam's role as her husband was to protect her, to care for her. Adam came first. It's not a statement of better. I'd say it took him two tries to get it right. The statement is that God was supposed, or Adam was supposed to be the one who watched over her, protected her, was her leader. But Adam stood by and let her fall into temptation. And then when she handed him the fruit, he took it and ate, and in that moment, he chose Eve over God. Is it possible that this explains why women today have such a hard time trusting men? Is it possible that this explains today why so many men seem to be chasing after a woman they can never really find? Something profound went wrong in the garden. And what Paul is telling us is all of us, all of us have been born now into a family where we have chosen. We, we have chosen. Nobody imposed this on us. We have chosen not to trust God. We have chosen to walk in the footsteps of our parents who chose to walk in the footsteps of the evil one, Satan, the serpent, who tempted Adam and Eve. And they trusted him more than God. And we've been living this story for generations now. And Paul describes us as dead, dead in our sins. You know the thing about dead things? They don't come back to life. And you probably should be glad as I've told you before, I had a dog once that got hit by a garbage truck, and I prayed every night that God would bring him back. My parents were like, please don't. They go back and please negate that prayer, Lord, do not bring him back. You don't want dead things to come back if it means they're coming back in a zombie-like situation. But if dead things can come back to life, not as dead things, 
but as alive things, as new things, as changed things, redeemed things, restored things, the way it was supposed to be things, not back to the original right before it died things, no, back to the original the way it was supposed to be before everything went wrong kind of thing, that would be a different story, wouldn't it? Ephesians chapter two, verse four, but God, man, I love that. You ought to just highlight that, underline that. You ought to get that as your next tattoo. I'm gonna make tattoo references for the rest of my life because I just see such good ones. Just tattoo, but God, dot, 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 on your arm. When people ask, say, but God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. I love the picture of baptism by immersion. And you don't fully get this with sprinkling. The image of immersion is when you go down into the waters, we call it a watery grave. The point is the old you is being left behind. The new you is being raised to life. And when you do that, you're marking this moment. This is the moment that I trusted Christ to be my savior, that I no longer put my hope in my ability to get better and my ability to do better, to stop doing these things that I know are against God. Instead, I'm trusting in him to do it in me. I'm trusting in him to rebuild and restore and renew that which the enemy has broken down and destroyed. And Paul says this is all done by grace. Because it's by grace you were saved. But God is so rich in his mercy. You remember just before Jesus goes to the cross, he's in the garden and he gathers the 11 disciples. Judas has gone to betray him and he keeps kneeling down and praying something. Father, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way. I don't know if you know this. Throughout the Old Testament, the cup analogy is a reference to the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus knows he is now moments away from drinking it to its fill. That's the biblical analogy. So when we talk about this wrath of God, what we're talking about is Jesus is going to have to drink the cup of the wrath of God. He didn't drink half the cup and leave half for you. He didn't drink 90% and there's a couple drops sitting down in there so that God can give you mercy and yet punish you until your last breath, perhaps beyond Now, the reason Jesus is anxious in the garden is, number one, he's going to go through the most physically painful death that a person has ever envisioned. Go study crucifixion. It's where we get our word excruciating from because what would happen in that moment was so terrible. But beyond that, for the first time and only time that we know of in all of eternity, past, present, and future, Jesus will be separated from his father. And that may not make sense to you because you don't fully understand the biblical narrative, but God the Father and God the Son have such a, a loving relationship, have never been separated. I and the Father are one, Jesus says over and over again. But in this moment, he's gonna be separated from his father. Why? Because he's gonna be carrying all of the cup of the wrath of God, which represents our sin and the punishment for our sin on himself. But God is so rich in his mercy that he didn't give you and me and Paul what we deserve. Instead, he poured out on his son what belonged to us. And it's only by grace. See, I live in the same country, the same town you do. I have many of the same conversations you have. I even have some of the same thoughts and struggles at times that you have too. One of the things I hear the most is, I'm a good person. I have this conversation so often that I sometimes struggle to really listen to somebody when they say it because I just want to get to the end. But forgive me if I've ever had that conversation with you. It's just, it's such a common thought. The thinking goes like this. It's either me or it's someone I know and love. But they're a good person, but I'm a good person. Implication, I'm not Saddam Hussein. You know, I was not Hitler. I'm not even like the worst guy in our community. I'm not like that. And what we mean for our friends and our families and our neighbors is, you know, they're kind, we enjoy the same sports. You know, our kids are in sports together. They work side by side at, you know, Chick-fil-A or whatever it is. They're good people. 
And meaning, I like them. I enjoy them. And nobody is for any minute saying, you shouldn't enjoy people. Of course you should enjoy people. God enjoys people. He made them in his image. But to refer to anybody other than God as good is to miss the biblical reference to what good is. In fact, one man approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher. Jesus stops him and says, why do you call me good? You know only God is good. The implication of what Jesus says is, I am God. You're on to something here. But the other part of that is, no one else is good. Only God is good. That means I'm not good. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. I'm not good. That feels good to get off my chest. And no matter how much I want to play it up and dress apart and act apart, I'm not good. However, that's not the end of the story. God is good. If you go all the way back to that garden, God got a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. He goes to Noah. He goes to Abraham. He goes to Moses. He goes to David. He goes to Daniel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and these prophets. And he gives us a glimpse, a snippet. One day, one day, one day, the garden's going to be restored. One day, everything's going to be made new. One day, everything's going to be a game changer. One day, one day, we get these little pictures. One day, a king is coming. And his king won't be like earthly kings. He won't be greedy. He won't just take your money and spend it abusively. No, no, no. One day, a king's going to come, and righteousness will reign. One day, a priest is coming, and it won't be like the priests you read in the Old Testament, Aaron, or perhaps uh, Samuel's sons, or Eli's sons. No, 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 no. This priest will come, and he'll actually bind up your wounds. He'll actually care for the broken. One day, one day, a prophet's coming, and this prophet's not just going to speak what people want to hear. He's going to speak the truth in a way that changes hearts and lives. One day, one day, there's going to be a father. He won't be like your earthly dad. No, no, no. He'll be a perfect heavenly father and you'll see him in earthly form one day you'll have a big brother and that big brother will literally go out of his way to pursue that which is lost and his story after story analogy after analogy and all of them point us to the character and to the heart of God and let us know who he really is and then Jesus shows up on the scene and he says now the kingdom of heaven is here it's in him and Jesus profoundly says to his disciples of John 15 and 16, but I got to go. What do you mean you got to go? There's still a kingdom to be built. Like you haven't even overthrown uh, Caesar and, and all these other rulers. And Jesus says, see, that's, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom isn't a physical kingdom. Oh, it'll take place in the physical world, but it's a spiritual kingdom. It'll reign in the hearts and lives of people. That's why when I go, I'll send one after me, the Holy Spirit. He'll be better for you. And the disciples are confused. Well, wherever you go, we want to go. He says, you can't go. What do you mean we can't go? Well, you will go, Jesus says, just not yet. And they're really confused. And after the fact, we go, oh, now we get it, but realize they didn't have a cross and a resurrection to point to. So they're grasping at straws to understand what Jesus is doing. What we know now is when Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead, he gave the power of God through the Holy Spirit to be in you, not just with you, not just near you, not just in the world, in you, in the hearts and in the lives of every single person who surrenders to God in Christ and says, I'm trusting Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. And now the Holy Spirit lives in me and I can have the power of God in me for daily living. My life has gone from dead to alive. I remember being at CLY about a decade ago, and I remember hearing a guy tell a story. Forgive me, the details escape me now, but I remember this. There was a man whose life had gotten so bad he was suicidal, and he was ready to kill himself. And it had been going on for a while, a slow decline into depression. And a missionary friend said, well, I tell you what, if you're so convinced you need to kill yourself, there's literally nothing I could do to stop you because at some point you're going to find a way to get it done. He said, I tell you what, I know a place where it's illegal to take Bibles into certain countries. And if you get caught, you'll either get thrown in prison or shot on the spot. How would you like to take some Bibles across the border? And the man at first thought, well, I don't necessarily like the way that sounds. But honestly, he was in such a bad place, he thought, might as well, if I'm going to die, let somebody else do it. And I remember hearing the whole story about the buildup and the putting him in the luggage and trying to get through and the checking the bags and the heart is racing and the dogs and the guns and just how terrifying it was. And then they make it through and he delivered the Bibles. And the missionary looked at him and said, well, that didn't work. You want to go again? 
And he did it again. After about the second or third time, it dawned on him, maybe my life can have more meaning than just chasing after the love of a person that I can't seem to find or chasing after the ever-elusive paycheck that finally buys the thing that makes me satisfied. Maybe my life can have purpose when I finally give up myself for the benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just wonder, I just wonder how many people here today or listening online are still trying to find their purpose. And maybe it's because you've never found it in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus tells a story similar to this. I want you to see this. Luke chapter 15. So if you have Ephesians open, hold it. Go over to Luke 15. You may have digital or whatever paper Bible. Or just watch the screen. Luke 15. Jesus is going around and he keeps doing this thing. I'll just read it to you then I'll teach. Luke chapter 15 verses 1 and 2. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. I love that. Other notorious sinners. We won't mention them here, but you know who they are. (laughs) Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Okay, pause. Why? What was it about Jesus that made them feel safe? See, there's something about the way that Jesus carries himself that they don't feel put off. They don't feel turned away. They don't feel uncomfortable in his presence. Go read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not that Jesus didn't speak the truth. <laughs> I mean, what Jesus said should have turned everybody away. It's like, well, gosh, none of us can live up to the Matthew 5 Sermon on the Mount. I mean, anybody who looks at a woman lustfully ought to gouge out his eye and cut off his hand. You got anything else in there for me, Jesus? But there's something about the way he says it. There's something about his demeanor, his presence, that makes the worst of the worst of the worst welcome into his presence. And it drives the Pharisees bonkers. Verse 2. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people. He even ate with them. Now, a couple things real quick. What's going on here? Number one, food in our day is a little different than food in their day. It was a big deal. Like, it took a long time to get the food, to make the food. Food was very expensive. You know, nowadays, you can go to McDonald's, buy a, a Happy Meal, and you're mad if it takes more than five minutes. You know, it's just, it was, it's not the same. In fact, even in some European cultures today, in different parts of the world, people sit, they sit for a couple hours, and they do a meal together. And meals were such a big deal that if you wanted to become well-known for your prominence, you would invite guests, and you would sit them next to you so that everybody could see how important you were based off your company. And Jesus keeps going and eating with notorious sinners. I mean, Some of them even joined his group, like the guy who wrote the book of Matthew was a tax collector. And before you insert an IRS joke, it was worse back then. Like tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for the Romans and were cheating the Jews. They hated these guys. Not only did they take the Roman portion of the taxes, they could just add whatever they wanted on top of it, and the people had to pay it, and that was their money. They were greedy, uh, taking from people who were desperate anyway. And Jesus would go into their home and do meals. And the Pharisees would often be invited in as well. But the Pharisees are always sitting on the outside of the table, pointing fingers and mocking and asking questions and trying to trick Jesus up. And in this situation, Jesus is hanging out with them. These sinners and the Pharisees are mad. Why are they mad? Because why aren't you spending more time with us, Jesus? We're the ones who deserve your attention, We're the ones who do good. We're the ones who act right. Verse three. So Jesus told them this story. (laughs) You know, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what's he gonna do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. (laughs) I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, I don't have time to go into this throughout Ephesians. We'll do more to Luke 15. Read the rest of Luke 15, and you'll see what Jesus is really saying is, you Pharisees think you're saved, but you're not. But let's just look at the math. A guy named Philip Yancey wrote a great book on this. Uh, it's What's So Amazing About Grace. He wrote a chapter all about the terrible math of God. Who in their world would leave 99 sheep to chase one? In your right mind, why would you give up 99 to chase one? Well, part of the implication to the Pharisees is you're one also, but they don't think they are. They think they're good. 
But the other implication, and don't get this, is the heart of your Savior, the heart of your Father. Jesus leaves the 99 and he chases the one. Because as Jesus says in his own words, I didn't come to heal the healthy. What good is a doctor to a healthy person? I came to heal the sick. And only those who know they're sick can get healed. And when this shepherd finds his sheep, it says he picks him up and he carries him home and he throws a big party. You know what's interesting? And I don't want to make too much of this, but it's at least interesting. He specifically says he left the sheep out in the field. But he calls his friends together to throw a party. Maybe he carried that sheep home, bound up its wounds, made it feel safe again. Maybe the other sheep out there are lost also because they're not home too. See, the reality for all of us guys is not about whether we're lost when we come to Jesus the problem is, will we let Jesus find us? He's looking. He's pursuing. He's going all, all over to track us down. Are we going to let Jesus find us, or are we going to keep trying to save ourselves? I don't know much about sheep. I'm not a shepherd. I don't do with things with farms. I really don't like stinky animals or children, but... I know everything I've read and everything I've heard taught on this is that sheep don't run away. They're not like dogs or cats. Sheep graze away. Little by little, they go, oh, that looks good, and they chase after it. And then they go, oh, that grass looks good, and they chase after it. And next thing you know, don't picture Indiana where it's flat and you can see for miles. No, picture the Middle East where there's rolling hills, caves, crevices, and the sheep just wander away. Next thing you know, the sheep looks back and goes, I don't know where my people are anymore. I don't know how I got here the shepherd can't just look and go, ha ha, silly sheep, and walk over there, run over there and get it. No, the shepherd has to go pursue. He has to look. He has to try to find in order to catch and to bring home. But here's the big question. If what God is doing in us is moving us from death to life, from lost to found, from broken to whole, he's doing it for a purpose. God's not just trying to gather together the believers in a holy huddle where they sit around and go, aren't you glad you used to be lost? Aren't you glad you're not anymore? He's gathered them together for the purpose of seeking and saving that which is lost. Take a look, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. For God, he, God, raised us from the dead along with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Jump down to verse 8. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Do you get what he's doing here? Jesus found you and he saved you. When you surrendered, he brought you home. It wasn't because you went out there going, look, I'm a really good sheep. I'm strong, I'm healthy, pick me. You were lost. You were without hope. You look back, you had no idea what direction to go. And your Savior showed up and said, let's go home, sheep. I love you too much to leave you out here struggling on your own. But when he took you home, when he cared for your wounds, when he fed you and gave you water, he made you feel safe again. Then he said, now I've got a job for you. Look at verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
And before the foundations of the world were laid, did you know that God had you in mind? He knew exactly what you were going to go through, exactly what he was going to do to get your attention and show you the cross to save you, and then exactly what he was going to do with you after the cross. The question for you is not, does God have a purpose for your life? The question is, have you traded the purpose of God for less wild lovers, for things that cannot satisfy, for a paycheck or a cell phone? or a house, a car, a person, an outfit? Have you traded God for anything? Because if so, you're going to find you keep hitting a wall, frustrated, with no hope. Church, we have the same purpose as our Heavenly Father, to seek what is lost. I need to ask a question. Is there anybody, anybody in your life right now that you're giving this good news to? Is there anybody in your life that you're sharing the good news of Jesus with? Because if your entire community that you surround yourself with is all made up of believers, church, I caution you. You may be dangerously close to becoming a Pharisee. If you have lost focus on who our Father is and pursuing that which is lost, that you may be dangerously close, dangerously close to not understanding who your Father is. I love the way Henry Nouwen says this. He says, your true identity is as a child of God. This is the identity that you have to accept. Once you have claimed it and settled in it, You can live in a world that gives you much joy as well as pain. You can receive the praise as well as the blame that comes to you as an opportunity for strengthening your basic identity because the identity that makes you free is anchored beyond all human praise and blame. You belong to God, and it is as a child of God that you are sent into the world. If you get nothing else, just get this. Grace saves you. Grace changes you. Grace gives you a purpose. Grace saves you. Grace changes you. Grace gives you a purpose. What we're going to do right now is go into communion time. While we take this communion, I want, I want you to get this. I know people start wrestling. Communion service, go serve. Go grab this stuff. Hear me, church, hear me. Some of you in this room, you need to do business with God. You need to spend some time right here, right now, wrestling with God. And then you need to stop wrestling and let him win. Whatever it is he's trying to do in your heart, your life, you're like, okay, that's it. White flag time, I surrender. I give up. I'm tired of fighting this battle and losing. The rest of you, maybe you don't have something specifically you're wrestling with God over. Here's your job for today. Your job during this communion is to just simply ask this prayer, God, would you give me the name of somebody who doesn't know you as far from you and needs the gospel? And you're going to pray that God would build a bridge, open a door, that you can walk across and introduce them to Jesus, the real Jesus. And it might be terrifying, so you're going to pray for strength. It might take resources, you might need to pray for money. It might take time, you need to pray for God to help clear your schedule. It might take a long-term commitment, pray for patient endurance. So whatever you need right now, you're just going to lift up to him and say, God, I want your heart for this world. Because one day you're going to come back, and God, I want to take as many people to heaven with me as I can. Let's pray, and then communion will come. Father in heaven. We thank you that it's by grace we have been saved. But this is not anything we've done. So there's literally, there's nothing we could boast about. There's no competition here about who's better. We literally are saved by your mercy. So God, some of us right now in this moment, we need to receive that mercy by praying and asking you to forgive our sins and trusting that you have forgiven us. It's not about whether we do better today than we did yesterday. It's about your grace being all-encompassing, so unbelievably powerful. But God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 
Grace increases the more we sin, but should we go on sinning so that grace could increase? Oh, by no means. May it never be. May we understand the, the debt you paid to free us from Satan, sin, and death. And may we walk in the newness of life that was given to us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, may we hate the things you hate and love the things you love. God, I pray that every man, woman, and child in this room would be willing to sacrifice and lay down, just like Jesus, anything, anything that's become more important than the things that are important to you. Oh, God, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Give us a name now. Somebody who needs the gospel like we did. In Jesus' name.